Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello everybody, Dr. Ross Green here. Welcome to our Back to School podcast for parents. We are going to be focused primarily tonight on COVID-19 and returning to school. And we have as our special guest, uh, Dr. Deb Hagler, who is a pediatrician up here in Maine. Um, And Deb, welcome to the program. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me. Can you You hear me okay? And hear you just fine. Fantastic. Um, yeah. We know that parents are very stressed out um, about the both the prospect of sending their kids back to school and the prospect of not sending their kids back to school. And things are changing daily almost and different in different parts of the country. Um, really tough decisions for schools to make. Some of the ones that have open. Things have not gone well at all. And so uh, we thought that on this podcast, we would uh, rely heavily on your expertise as a pediatrician. Um, And we thought that that's where we would begin with you giving us a bit of an overview of what we know, what we don't know, um, what you're seeing out there. And of course, Maine, uh, where you and I both live, has had it relatively easy, if there is such a thing, when it comes to COVID-19. We have low rates now and um, uh, haven't compared at all to places like California and Arizona and um, Texas and even New York City, which is, of course, now uh, in better shape. So let's rely on you here in the beginning. And then I want to give people the call-in number, though, because we want to hear from you. Uh, 347-994-2981. Feel free to call in. You don't have to tell us who you are or any identifying information, but if you want to vent or ask questions or share ideas or get some guidance, we are happy to provide that for the next hour. In the meantime, let us begin with Dr. Hagler. Tell us what we know and what we don't know and give us your take on this whole thing. Sure, Ross. Well, first, thanks for thanks for having me. And um, clearly, this is a difficult decision for everyone. Um, what I'll just start off with reminding people, because unfortunately, it's become a, a hot political issue in the United States, that the, the enemy really is the virus. And that um, successful, at this point, we're at a mitigation um, point with the virus. So if you think about it, we're talking about risk management and um, making our decisions based on our tolerance for risk. And certainly, if you look at sending a child back to school, 
um, many places kids have been out of school for a long time, and there's certainly we know a lot of risk for kids associated with being out of school. And then we certainly understand that there may be risk to consider um, regarding going back to school. And there's a whole litany. I'm going to talk about that first, Ross, if that's okay. Um, There's certainly to think about with opening schools that just don't even have anything to do with the child. So the safety of the community, um, we are not sure yet we understand how schools yet propagate infection in a community itself, meaning do schools act as an accelerator when it comes to infection? We know with things like influenza that that's the case. We're, we're not sure about that yet with coronavirus. We have some evidence in communities that that is not the case, but we certainly have not sent children back to school um, in communities or have not studied what happens in communities where there's um, large growth of the infection, meaning that data that we have looked at, so in countries where they have um, been able to send students back initially to school and have done it successfully, there's been overall um, containment of the infection in the community. And so they have not seen um, the schools accelerate community outbreaks. And the big examples of that are some of the Scandinavian countries. Initially, when they sent kids back to school in Israel, there was quite a low rate of infection in, um, in the Israeli community. However, they also re- re- relieved a lot of the other public health measures simultaneously as they were sending children back into, the, into schools. And so things went downhill really quickly in Israel, in schools in Israel, and, and epidemiologists and people that are looking at that aren't sure if, what, if the schools actually propagated community spread or if it was everything got, restrictions got sort of loosened up in the community and then they saw outbreaks in the school. So that, that's still to, to be determined. But one thing we're still not certain of is how much having kids in schools may actually spread virus in the community. That's, that's still to be determined. Um, the other thing to be, consider is we know that there are teachers in schools that may be in high-risk categories. So certainly we need to, to understand that there are risks to putting kids in, in the classroom in, in closer contact with faculty members and, and members of the school community that may be at higher risk, either have chronic conditions or um, are in an age category that are at higher risk. And, and then there's the whole, all of the logistics and recommendations that many of the public health experts are making to um, suggest that schools can open safely around distancing within the schools, around delivery of food, around ventilation, and there's just that, that requires money. So there's a whole feasibility um, issue with with making schools safe. That being said, a lot of schools, and I'm going to speak to Maine, have been able to make some of those accommodations and and are moving forward. And there's been a lot of thoughtful planning about that. So what are the what are the risks to kids? The things that we think we do know about coronavirus, and um, and you know things again are changing, but but fortunately the truth is, um, as of you know the uh, and I'll just I'm going to quote dry numbers Ross here, but as of um, August 13th, 
we know that with 21 states reporting that overall hospital children really have not borne the brunt of the severe consequences of this of this pandemic. So we know that with 20 states, 21 states reporting that hospitalization rates overall among the pediatric population have been really, really low. So depending on what state you're looking at, they've been about 0.5% to 4.6% of all hospitalization rates. Um, and the mortality among children is really, really very, very low. That's not to say that it hasn't been zero. There have been some kids that have been severely ill from coronavirus, and then we've dealt with this new thing that many parents have heard of so called uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome of childhood, which is a rare, rare, rare consequence, we think, when the immune system is hyperactivated from an earlier coronavirus infection in children. And there have been around 570 cases reported in the United States and around 10 deaths associated with that. But again, it's felt to be extraordinarily a rare piece of this pandemic. So overall for children, we know that this has been a mild, mild, mild illness. And in fact, many children, we believe, are asymptomatic when they get this. So some studies have suggested up to 30 to 40% of children may have no symptoms or they may just look like a mild cold, which, which can present a huge problem when you're talking about sending children back into the classroom. How are you going to tell if that, like, mild runny nose is just their allergies or a cold? Um, so that, that presents a huge conundrum when we talk about opening our schools. But we think our kids, for the most part, will be safe. The other interesting piece of epidemiologic data we think we understand or under, have some idea or some studies seem to indicate is the younger you are, so kids particularly less than 10, we think are less susceptible. And this comes from early data looking at attack rates in households. So it, it, looking at some of the households where adults got sick, but you would expect some of the kids in the household to get sick and they didn't. Um, and then looking at modeling studies where they looked at the number of people that became ill during, in certain populations, and they don't quite get those numbers, and you would only achieve these numbers if a certain population just didn't get the infection. So they can predict from some of these modeling studies that kids, particularly our younger children, just don't seem to be quite um, as susceptible to getting infection. And then there's other epidemiologic studies that suggest the younger you are, so less than 10 again, seems to be less efficient at transmitting um, the virus. And that comes from uh, other studies in, in preschool settings where um, adults have been the ones ultimately identified as spreading it throughout the school system, but young children have not been efficient spreaders of it. Um, so that that's all that's all pretty good news, and, and there have been some very early studies, and again, this is all evolving, um, and some of this, this work needs to be replicated, but there seems in young children to be um, what we call biologic plausibility, so some evidence that the biology replicates this. They don't seem to have, at least in one big study that has been looked at and quoted, they don't seem to have quite the number of receptors to grab the virus when they're really little, internalize it as an adult. And as you age, it looks like people get more of these receptors to grab the virus, and so you become more efficient at getting it and getting infected. Again, the science is evolving, and that's why recommendations tend to change. But at least that does seem to be fairly, 
fairly consistent still moving forward. It may all, you know, it may all change in six months when they're all back in school. And again, we've kept children out of their um, normal life. We've kept them pretty sheltered for the last six months. Although, you know, one exception is Sweden where kids, you know, in mm-hmm. primary school, so ages six to 15, were allowed to continue through and their initial reporting is really interesting. Their infection rate in that population is, is similar to uh, the population in Finland where they restricted kids uh, from going to school in that age group. So, so I think we still have a lot to learn, but some of the at least initial studies are reassuring about how this behaves in young, younger children. Um, so, uh, and we do know that there, there are some children with high-risk medical conditions that put them slightly at higher risk for being hospitalized and having more severe complications, um, and that's kids with severe cardiovascular disease, kids that we call medical, medically complex, so kids that often have chronic um, neuromuscular disease, may have a tracheostomy to help them breathe. Um, uh, and kids that have some types of metabolic disease, underlying disease like type 2 diabetes, um, and kids that may be immunosuppressed, particularly kids that may be getting treatment for uh, certain types of cancers or have rare autoimmune disease, but th- those are rare. Um, and, and then there are children that are perfectly healthy that we don't understand why they may, might have a more severe t- course with their coronavirus and be hospitalized um, but again, it, it still overall looks like that is relatively a fairly rare occurrence for most children. Um, so, Ross, I can, I can, the flip side, I'm just going to go to the flip side. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I'll talk Please. to the flip side. We also know that there's a population of children um, that really has struggled outside of school. There are many kids mm-hmm. that rely on school for a host of services, and I am in particularly thinking I have kids um, who have a diagnosis on the autism spectrum that get a host of services uh, from the school, um, including behavioral health support. They will get occupational therapy, physical therapy. They engage with students all day long, and they have really suffered during the time outside of the school. There are many uh, communities where school is is a huge source of nutrition and food for children. Um, about one in four of, of children uh, in the community where I serve require, need school for, for, for lunch and for breakfast. Um, so schools, schools also provide, in many of our areas, they provide counselors, and they're critical mental health counselors for many of the children in um, our region. So, and, and kids are, they miss their friends, and I will say one of the more critical, stable adult relationships children develop in their lifetime is with their teachers, um, and they are missing those connections. So uh, school, school is critical for, um, for kids, and they miss their friends, and you learn a lot from your peer group. Um, so, so kids are missing that. So there's a huge balance um, from that loss, and I have, I, I do have some students that I will say that are are thriving with sort of this homeschool setup. They they had um, struggled with with severe anxiety or had been suffering from some bullying in school, and there is a cadre that's doing well. But I would say 
the vast majority of them really are missing missing school and and ready to go back. Um, so many families now are finding themselves in the situation of mm-hmm. weighing the the potential risks, and there's no way to completely make this a, a bubble and a completely we can't coronavirus is here it's not going away so it's a risk mitigation strategy um and we do know we do there are there are things we can do and i think that um there's a big role for the community and how the community participates and one thing that seems key particularly in hearing stories of what's happening around the country um, is that the, the rates of transmission in the community need to be under control for the schools to be successful. Um, so, um, you know, people participating in things that, you know, I keep listening to Dr. Fauci say the same things over and over again, but wearing the mask, washing your hands, trying to keep things at a distance, not going to large group gatherings like bars and restaurants, but doing the things, the public health things that we know that can control infections and have been utilized successfully in other countries uh, to control the virus um, will help children be successful or will reduce the risk significantly to our school communities as schools open up. So, um, Ross, I feel like I've talked a lot now, so maybe I should pause and see if it's <laughs> here. A lot of information, but um, extremely helpful. By the way, we've been joined by our Director of Outreach, Kim Hopkins-Betts. Kim, Hello. how are you? Hello. I'm good, and I apologize for being late. It actually is related to our school uh, giving us some new information tonight that launched us into a conversation that then made dinner late for the kids. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that's what families are dealing with these days. Um, uh, I, I do have... Dr. Hagler, you mentioned that um, community control of COVID is essential when it comes to sending kids back to school. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, you're in the medical profession, so I think that the answer to the question that I'm about to ask is probably obvious. But when you see people referring to COVID-19 as a hoax, when you see um, pictures of sometimes college kids, but also adults, um, clustering together at parties or in bars without masks. Um, you know, I think Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have been as polite as possible about that. You don't have to be polite on this program. What do you think when you see that stuff? And, um, you know, I must say what it makes me think about is um, what does that say about us as a society and our willingness to look after each other and take care of each other? Um, But maybe that's a different question. When you hear this described as a hoax um, and when you see people taking it not seriously, given that sending kids back to school is really dependent on everybody in the community, not just the kids, not just their families. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, it's hard, Ross, because I think um, the pandemic right now is touching people in so many different ways. 
So clearly in medicine, we see the immediate consequences of the pandemic. So we see the immediate health uh, and the devastation and the loss of life and um, the overwhelmed, you know, hospital systems and the emergency systems, and we see people losing loved ones um, that and lives interrupted that otherwise would not have happened. But then there are people that are um, have not felt that, and the sequelae of the pandemic to them may be a loss of a job or a loss of a business. So they are suffering from from this mm-hmm. pandemic. And I understand suffering and don't, don't want to um, diminish that suffering. What I would hope to be able to help them to understand is that the only way that we can work to end everybody's suffering is to end the public, the health crisis, because whether or not that immediacy of the health crisis is touching their immediate family, it will. If we don't get it under control, eventually they they will be pinged by that pain of of immediate health loss. It will eventually infiltrate the population to the point that that people will not escape it at that personal personal touch level. But the the sort of the further ripple effect of the economic effects that they're feeling right now, um, that's their paying. And so their suffering is is real, but getting them to pull back and understand that they really are part of, they are part of this, but they're, they're, it's like a, how, I want to try to figure out the analogy of like a wake or, and from a boat, like they're really, they may be closer in, they may be further out from the immediate impact of the wake of the boat speeding by, but as the pandemic, you know, rages on, um, that boat is going to get closer and closer to them, and it may knock them over in a more direct way. But they're still feeling the the ripple effect, and the way to get control of everything is to get control of the boat, which is the virus, and having people. Having people understand that that reality and understand that that is what's causing the suffering um, is the key key message that people need to hear is that we're all suffering and it's we're all suffering from a virus, and the virus can be controlled and it can be controlled when we all do the same things and you're suffering out here from it because of this. But this person in the hospital bed with, you know, I mean, sometimes their 21-year-old or their, you know, their grandparent who was, you know, at the assisted living place is suffering the immediate impacts of this. And you're a part of that. And if you want to get better from your suffering, we need to get rid of the blind invader. And it's really um, hitting that message over and over again is the wake isn't going to go away because the boat is still out of control and the boat is the virus. Um, and I think it's, it, 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 it's, it's getting people to wrap their arms around that idea. And I think more and more people are starting to get that. And But that requires leadership, Ross, and that requires people at the very, very top of, 
you know, that make decisions and that are putting out policy and leading discussions and things like that to to walk the walk and say the same thing over and over and over again. This isn't about politics. This is about a virus. And the virus has immediate impacts and it has long-term impacts. And we can't control any of the other suffering without controlling the virus. And the virus gets controlled when we do simple things that we, we're all capable of doing. They may be unpleasant, but if, if we do them and we do them together, we can defeat it. And then your suffering will end and the immediate suffering of people that are having the direct consequences will end. But it, it, it's frustrating because, you know, um, it, the absorption of the message takes so long, and when you know when you're stepping on the porcupine quill, you want somebody to take it out right away. You want it to end immediately. And it, honestly, it's frustrating because there are other places that have gotten it um, so much quicker than than we apparently have in our in our country. But I think we have to have that. We have to understand there's suffering at all different levels, but the message has to be it's the virus, and the way to get rid of the virus is to do these things. Um, so I, 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 it's frustrating, but I, I keep pivoting back to it's the virus, it's there, this is what we need to do. And, and that has been my message to so many, so many people. Um, over and over and over again. So I want to remind people of the call-in number. It's 347-994-2981. We do have some questions queued up from emails, but I do want to ask you one more question just to tap into your medical expertise before I start talking with Kim about um, who has two younger children about what the pandemic has meant for her and her family and what she's hearing from people in our uh, Facebook group, the B team about how they're managing. But mm-hmm. you mentioned um, someday we'll be done with this. I know yeah. that this is impossible, but what's your forecast for when we will be past this? Um uh, my Ross, my best guess um, is probably uh, end of next year, maybe into early early um, early twenty twenty two. Yeah, and I and that's you know that's a guess. And that's just based on, you know, listening to the news media, listening to leaders, and and hearing what's happening with vaccine development, which honestly is really impressive, um, and 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 mixed in with a a, a lot of hope too. Um, I am hopeful. I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm I am hopeful um, because we we. We as a people can overcome these things. It, you know, it, it takes us sometimes a little bit of time to get there. Um, but I think um, 
I do think it depends on on it does depend on several different things, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. Probably end of next year, beginning of um, 2022 is my hope. Got it. So, Kim, Deb, thank you so much for all of that. And um, I'm, some of the questions that are queued up are definitely ones that we're going to want you to weigh in on. But, Kim, um, as our representative on this call of someone with young kids, how have you all been doing and how have you all been doing it? Uh, <laughs> well, I think it could be because there's, I'm going to say light at the end of the tunnel, although I'm using that term loosely, that um, <laughs> I, like, I myself am finding that, you know, balancing the kids and the work has just, I I did it for months. I did it just fine because it's what I had to do. And now that I am maybe faced with not having to do that, because like my daughter's school plan right now is a hybrid model where she'll be out of the house two days a week. Um, And then I figured out something for my son that feels safe for us that does not include him going for his last year of preschool. Um, So that I'm actually going to be able to separate motherhood from working and so now it's like I can't wait for the next couple of weeks to go by until that plan can like I don't like I don't feel like I can do both right now even though I've done them for months because I see that I'm not going to have to do that pretty soon and it has felt at times really impossible Um, and I think the biggest thing now that I'm just sort of in awe about is that there's so much different guidance on well, there's so many different plans different schools are doing, and there's so much competing different guidance on what parents should be choosing. It's it's really unsettling, and you start to question your own sanity. And, you know, because, you know, I, I am in contact with some people who are incredibly conservative, and, you know, my kid's not going to school at all, and we don't go out and all of that, and that is their prerogative, Right. And I interact with people on the complete opposite end that come very close to saying we're making too much of this, and I don't fall over there, right? So I'm sort of somewhere in the middle toward the conservative side, I'd say. Um, and it's just like the the pressure we as parents are feeling around the choices we're making from the camp that's not doing the same thing. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of being told <laughs> – uh, oh, you're taking it too seriously or you're being told you're not taking it seriously enough. And there's a lot of anger. And I don't understand the anger and the shaming because I just feel like we're all trying to figure this out, you know, and nobody really knows a good answer, which is why there's a million different plans for different schools. Um, and so I guess that's kind of what I and a lot of other parents are struck by lately, you know, just how do you make a choice? And, you know, there's a lot of people weighing in on what the expectations should be, which I hate the word should, should be for somebody, for other families. Um, and so how do you sort of find your way and say, you know what, this is what's comfortable for our family and these are our expectations and this is what we're going to go with. And you know what, new information's coming all the time. We could, we're going to be prepared to pivot if, if we want to or need to. So, uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of what I'd say. Very about interesting. That. And, Deb, okay. as you said at the beginning of the call, this is all about risk tolerance. And 
risk tolerance is highly subjective and highly individualized. Anything you want to uh, comment on in terms of what Kim said? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, I, you know, it's, it's very interesting and it's sad to me because our, our risk tolerance is very individualized. And uh, honestly, in general, um, I would say overall humans are very bad at assessing risk. Um, uh, we're just not – overall, we're not good at it. And there's many reasons for that um, because we have all sorts of any biases, and those are protective. Um, so, like um, – you know, you're you're you have an anchoring bias. So the last thing that you read is gonna is gonna bias your your judgment. Or there's lots of things about the last thing that you reflect on or that happened to you is gonna influence your judgment. You, Ross, you you know all about this. But and those yeah. are good things, and they've kept us alive. But the thing that is so human, and I think social media has happened, is we all judge each other about this in such negative, mm-hmm. harsh ways. That makes it even worse when we're trying to make decisions. So we have these inherent biases that are, in some sense, hardwired and in many ways meant to are there because evolutionarily they were protective. But then human nature and, I think, social media makes us all judge each other around our risk decision judgment trees. So it just makes it even harder to make these complex decisions um and there is there is good information if you can find it in the morass out there to help people guide some of the decision making but it's hard to wind through the noise to find it and then it's hard to it's hard to make a, a sound judgment when you're I mean, a decision when you're getting so much judgment and shame around it so we have all these whammies that work against us when we're really trying to, I think everyone is in the end trying to do the best they can, particularly by their children. Like, um, this is something that most of us can all agree on is we want to do the best by our kids. So it, I think, Ross, it's so complicated and it's so interesting to hear, you know, about the shaming and, the, and, and, and you know, judgment around what people are doing. I, you know, I... I Totally, I'm sad about that, and I'm sorry to hear that. Especially, when it seems to be the trend these days on a lot of things. This shaming and judgmental thing that we do. Um, Kim, in terms of, since you are our representative parent here of young kids, Deb's kids and my kids are older, um, and also making some interesting decisions. But so far, so good in our cases. Um, how are, how do you think your kids are doing through all of this? This has been a disruption to life as usual. Um, I always think of kids as being very resilient, and I think that, that my sense uh, with families out there is that that has generally been the case. How do you think your kids are doing, Kim? I would say that any given moment they're doing as well as I'm doing and my husband's doing because they're watching us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we are calm and, you know, projecting, uh, well, this is different, but we're going to figure it out. And sometimes we might try something and if it doesn't work, you know, we'll try something else. But, you know, we have all the faith that it's going to work out, right? 
if we waver from that, and there have been times, especially in the beginning, where you just like it was kind of like this, um, this like evil monster that you couldn't see that was lurking everywhere. That <laughs> that's what it felt like because we didn't really know much, right? And so um, they could maybe catch us off, or they could maybe like we work very hard not to have the news on and stuff like that, and they could maybe catch the tail end of something that we didn't see them coming or whatever and didn't mute it or whatnot. And that could, that was, that, that spins us, particularly my daughter very quickly goes into panic and, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of have to walk it back, you know, and in our town, you can choose to be fully distance learning. And she found out that one of her very good friends is going to be fully distance learning. And that made her then question, because we had her weigh in on what she wanted to do and what she thought she could handle and what might be best for her. And um, that had her, that sent her second guessing her decision to go hybrid and into a little bit of a tailspin and just sort of helping her think it through and sort it out about why someone might pick that. Um, you know, and so I, I would say I, I, I'm, I don't know about long-term effects of this. I think that trying to have as much normalcy as possible, we actually had the unfortunate incident um, a week ago Friday where the only camp I sent her to because it was outdoors and 10 kids with really good policies in place called on the last day ending camp early because um, a camper had been exposed to somebody who was positive. It's like not the call you want to get, right? So it was like, okay, this is not a drill. We have to think through, like, what are we doing to protect her and to protect us and to protect the people around us? And we canceled a bunch of social events and stuff like that. And while we were awaiting the camper's test, because that's what the pediatrician said to do, um, and it was going to take till Tuesday, so Friday to Tuesday, you know, I didn't want her to feel like, we're on lockdown, right? So I was like, what can we do that doesn't put anybody at risk, but is very summer fun. And I was on, I, that was my vacation week. So I was on vacation and, you know, finding things that are enjoyable that didn't have us putting anyone at risk if we were possibly doing that, which I didn't feel like we were. It was a pretty low risk situation, but there was risk, right? So, you know, we picked peaches when nobody was there and flowers and we, um, you know, went to the beach when it wasn't crowded, like stuff like that and just, stayed away from people. So we tried to create normally fun childhood things. And when she does go down that path of like worry, I talk about like, think about all like the normal stuff we did. It wouldn't have been any different if it weren't, this were not happening. We did all these things, right? And she thinks about it and she says, yes. And, you know, but really taking their cues from us, which is a lot of pressure. It sounds, <laughs> sounds like you have <laughs> always, it sounds like, you've been collaborating through the pandemic. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, there was no, there's no other way to do it well. There's no other way because there's such competing concerns right now in many aspects, especially on days that I have to work, right? Um, and then with this new school plan, I wasn't going to, like, shove it down her throat and be like, live with it, I'm, you know, because – I'm tempted to send her because it gives me some breathing time to work, although I'm tempted not to send her because of my anxiety of what I could be putting her at risk. And so, you know, we just, in words that she could understand, kind of talked all the issues around and said, you know, what do you think? It's like a pros and cons and whatever you choose, we're going to make it work, you know? Um, And then talked about like, and if you choose this, because there were, there were times she, you know, she fared pretty well 
um, with the distance learning, she's one of those kids who's pretty self-directed. Um, but there were points where she didn't, particularly because she had about two hours a day and the rest of it was open. So then we had to do some work around that. So just talking through what expectations would be for days you're home, what you'll need from us, that kind of stuff, what will make it easier for you, what do we need to do with your space or whatever. Um, and then, you know, my son's a whole different whole different kettle. And, you know, for him, what, what I'm trying to relax about is he, meets, he does not meet the cutoff for kindergarten, and he's a very, very tall kid. So if he's not five till this December, he's huge, and he's bright. So, you know, I haven't made him write any letters or numbers or anything like that that he was doing <laughs> before all this. And I wasn't feeling guilty about it because I thought, well, he'll just start school again in late August, and he'll be good. He still has a year before kindergarten, right? And now I'm just deciding not to send him because they're not able to do what feels good to us, and I don't blame them. It's just not what they can do so then I start thinking oh my gosh he's going to be behind and then um, a very helpful pediatrician wrote something that has just stuck with me about um, you know what it is think of it as a year like a year in him quote-unquote being behind I'm not even sure that's an accurate <laughs> perception of mine right but like that it's, it's a year he'll make it up he'll be fine like it's okay like it's not as important right now as health and safety and I'm like, you're right, you're right. But I hold on to that for dear life because I worry about it's, that. It, it's big. It, uh, one of our questions, we have a caller, by the way, who I'm going to take in a second from Louisiana. But um, we have a email asking, how much should I worry about lost time at school and lost learning? I mean, we're in a pandemic, exclamation point. Can we really expect things to be normal? And so I think parents would love to feel reassured that their belief, and this is not true for all parents because, uh, Deb, as you were pointing out earlier, there are kids who badly need to be in school and um, need what school has to offer. And, of course, that's the dilemma is given what school, but but I think that a lot of parents don't feel that it's, absolutely critical that their child be in school, but one of their primary concerns is lost learning. And I have the same mentality as Kim, the pediatrician you spoke, who you're quoting, and that is that I don't worry as much about if I have to prioritize, I'm going to prioritize health over lost learning because I think you can make up learning time. But Deb, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, and then we'll take our caller from Louisiana. Yeah, right. I mean, it you know, it it depend it depends. I think um and I'm not an educational expert, so I think that there that most kids can catch up, but there are kids that it's going to be harder for them to catch that time up versus others. And and I'm thinking of kids that don't have say you switch to remote learning and they don't have access to the technology or they don't have a parent that's going to make sure that they're doing the work. Um, you know, the, some of that brain time is, is critical time, and kids are really resilient. But there are other factors that may make it so that that slide back becomes um, snowballs, and it becomes really much harder for that child to catch up. And it's all going to be, um, you know, different 
it, it, certainly very different circumstances for each family. But there are kids that are, that lost learning is going to be a real challenge for them to recoup. Um, and, again, I'm not an educational expert, but I am thinking of kids that, that may not have access to some of the technology um, and the resources. And, and this is going to be a real loss, um, the learning time, uh, and, and, you know, with, with time and resources, a lot of kids can make it up. But, but that may be a bigger hill to climb for some people than others. And so it is really going to be um, a, a hard hit and for some much harder than others to make up that learning time. Um, so, um, yeah, I, th- I think... Um, and again, you know, we all we all think health definitely needs obviously to be prioritized because if you're critically ill, obviously you can't learn. Um, but the the nationwide data, at least for kids, is again suggesting that overall their health health is um, generally speaking being spared in in this pandemic. And things like for some populations, the learning. Um, maybe really a, a big loss for a certain uh, for certain certain families for uh, and certain groups of kids, and you know the World Health Organization is you know um, worried about that globally for a generation of children. Got it. Let's go to our caller, area code three three seven. You're on the air almost. How you doing? And what's on your mind? Hi, how you doing? I'm calling from Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, my question is, um, after living in a quarantine since March, how do we get our kids back in the groove to do school routine at home for the people who don't want to send their kids to school? You know, how do we get back in a routine of school when we've been following the CPS? I've been following the CPS model for a year now. I'm just trying to keep things calm at home and I haven't been doing rewards and consequences and that kind of stuff. I'm trying to figure out how to get him back in the groove of, okay, we have to go to school, even though we're not going on campus, we're doing it home. And I'm dealing with um, delayed skills because I have a 12 year old with Down syndrome. Mm. Well, um, I guess I'll take that one real quickly, but then happy to have Deb and Kim weigh in. Um, you know, it's not an unsolved problem until your child is having difficulty meeting an expectation. So it is conceivable, conceivable, not knowing your child, that um, your child may be eager to get back into doing something besides what they're doing now. And so it is conceivable, once again, not knowing your child, I don't know if it's probable, that your child will meet that expectation and will um, actually look forward to some interaction with people outside of the home. If it's an expectation, and you can let your child know that it's coming so, and, and let them know that what your expectation is, always good to let your child know what's coming and what your expectation is going to be around it and talk about it. But it's only an unmet expectation once it's an unmet expectation. So if your child has no difficulty meeting it, you're good to go. If your child is having difficulty meeting it, 
that's where you have some decisions to make. And if, as somebody who's been following the CPS model, uh, the hope would be that you feel confident that you'll be able to, in one way or another, not knowing your child, I don't know uh, how easily your child participates in the plan B, but that you'll be able to figure out by one means or another what's making it hard for your child to meet that expectation and that you'll be able to enter your concerns into consideration and that you all will be able to work that through um, and come up with solutions. But you only need to do that if your child is having difficulty meeting the expectation. Sounds like you're anticipating that that will be the case. Is that correct? Yes, he definitely has the don't wants. He's been having the don't wants all summer. Don't want to get back into school? Yes, doesn't want to do anything school-related. To school? Yes. You know, I, I, um, I have a, the program online um, that had some summer projects and some summer yeah. work, and I, I've been fighting him all summer to try to get him to do, you know, to to get some work done. And he just, he is not interested. He doesn't want to do it. Um do you think I'm that just, will change? Do you think that will change once it's um, not something that is? I can't tell if what Option. you were asking him to do this summer was optional, but once it becomes mandatory and a teacher is involved, do you have any anticipation that that will be different? Um, I'm not sure yet what it's going to be like. Um, because I can't do typical online school like I'm doing with my first grader because Mm -hmm. he's in SPED. Um, So I'm thinking if they have some type of Zoom situation, he might get more motivated when he sees Mm -hmm. classmates. Um, It was just such a difficult year last year in a self-contained classroom that it was more behavioral issues with other classmates versus any learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's going to be hard to get motivated. So Especially you might, if he's just doing the program. If, if he's just doing yeah. the program they were doing last year, he's totally bored with it. So it would be good if you had contact, if you're able, to have contact with the folks at school in terms of what they do have planned for him, what his program mm-hmm. is going to be, so that you are clearer about what the expectations are going to be once school starts and then you can help your son be aware. Right now, it's a void. It sounds like we're not even mm-hmm. sure what it's going to look like. It's very hard to prepare <laughs> yeah. your son for something that we don't even know what it's going to look like yet. So it sure would be great to get some clarity on that. You can run it by your son and say, um, here's what it looks like they have planned for you. Tell me the parts of this, if any, that you think are going to be hard and let's talk about it, and let's figure out what's going to be hard for you, and let's see if we can solve it. Um, so I don't know if the fact that it was optional over the summer and won't be so optional once school starts will work in your favor. Um, it would be good, though, to get clarity on what the expectations are going to be, because right now you are staring into the abyss and don't really know. Exactly. Kim or Deb, any other thoughts, thoughts on that? I would just add that once you do get that clarity, if it's six or eight expectations that you're anticipating 
will be difficult for your child to meet, start with one, <laughs> pursuing that one and, and having that conversation of, you know, what do you think this will be like for you? And let's like picture it and walk through it. Um, but it might be tempting to be like, I've got to solve all six or eight of these now, right? Um, which won't probably work in your favor. I started to do something similar with my son, who is my challenging child, um, who's four and a half. And um, when I thought I would be returning him to school a couple of weeks before, I started talking to him about that because my son is living his best life here at home. He loves to be at home, <laughs> loves to be with mommy. He just, he's going back to school. It's going to be, it was always a challenge. It's definitely going to be a challenge. And, and I said, you know, what do you think about going back to school? I'm starting to try to, you know, feel from him what will be hard. And he shut me right down. I'm not going back to school. I said, oh, really? Why not? He said, because I don't want to get in trouble. And um, it was true. He was <laughs> my in some trouble. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and on that on that one, I can't blame him, right? Um, and so, like, that was one I was going to pocket that I had to work on with him and with his teachers. Um, and then there was going to be other things, like, and I was going to walk him through, like, the morning routine and, and leaving in the morning because that was always hard. And then I was going to walk him through, you know, nap time at school because that was always hard. And, you know what I mean? Like, there were certainly successful times, but there were definitely obvious challenging times and to sort of start problem solving ahead, um, which I, you know, now I'm going to say I've dropped it for now because I'm not having the school expectation, but that will come around next year and it's going to be the big time. It's going to be kindergarten. So um, I'm sure we'll be coming back to that. So The major leagues. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to our caller, Deb, Deb, anything to <laughs> add to that? Yeah, I mean, my only other piece of advice, and this is for all families, is as people, no matter what the schedule is, um, is to gently start shifting sleep back into a more compatible schedule with school. A lot of kids' sleep schedules have changed over the summer, and, you know, having back on day one to even if it's virtual, get up at the crack of dawn to get the computer on and everything uploaded it is really hard for kids if if they're having to wake up um, later and go to bed earlier. So if you can start a slow shift back to what school might look like, even if it's just a few minutes shaving off every night and starting to get back up a little bit earlier, it, it makes, yes. makes it a little bit easier to get sleep back under control. Yes. We're mom totally in Louisiana. With quarantine. Any other questions, Mom? Um, no, that's about it. Now, you know, just the the whole quarantine, I've just been concentrating on his behavior with his younger sister and his aggression, and now I'm trying to figure out how school is going to, um, fall into that. And how he, to- he might surprise you, but if he doesn't, um, you've got plan B. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Good luck. Take care. You bet. So we only have about five minutes left, but we do have another caller. So let's see if we can sneak this in from area code 306. You are on the air. What's up? Hi. um, I'm calling from Saskatchewan, Canada. Um, Hey there. And I just had a quick question um, about my my oldest son. He has anxiety, and we've decided that we're going to do online learning. Um, but he struggles with nightmares every so often about his dad dying. 
and so I'm not sure how to help them with that. And I think it has to do with the virus. Well, um, my answer would be we have to ask him about that. Um, so it's okay to think that it might have to do with the virus. I think that there are a lot of kids who have a lot of questions. Um, you know, they've seen things on the news. They've heard things from their friends and parents. They may have seen things online. Um, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. earlier in the program about how hard this is for parents to sort through with all of the information and with all of the judgmental stuff going on and shaming going on. But um, right. So you, you might be right. We don't know what he is thinking, but there's really only one way to find out, and that is right. to ask. Okay. Um, so you don't think I'm, like, going to be um, pouring salt in a wound or anything if I ask him about it? Well, your only other option is to just uh, is to leave it unaddressed. Um, right, that's true. And, and and to have the conversation not take place, and then he's not communicating with you about what he's thinking, and you really only you, you're relegated to only assuming what you know he's thinking. I still oh, okay. think that communicating about these things is better than not. Um. You know, as Kim was telling us earlier, uh, her daughter's anxious, and they've had to talk through quite a few things. But if they're not talking, then her daughter is just anxious, and Kim is just not Mm. knowing what they need to talk about. So generally speaking, I think communicating is better than not. Um, And if your son has questions, you may be the perfect person to answer them. And at the very least, his voice will be heard, and you'll be listening. Right. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Without knowing your son, that's that's the best from here, but let's see if Deb or Kim want to weigh in before we have to sign off here tonight. Okay. I, I would just say um, it, it definitely echo what Ross just said. It, 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 sometimes it feels really uncomfortable and you're afraid to ask them for fear of stirring up more fear, but when you mm-hmm. ask them and they talk to you, first of all, you can validate, you know, that that a lot of stuff in the world right now is scary, but they actually may need more information or may need correct information. And because you, in a child's mind, you may not fully appreciate all the things that they're that are on their mind, and you may be able to give them information that actually could allay their worries. And then, yeah. even if you can't completely allay a fear or worry, um, one one of my favorite things from a course I took was from a psychiatrist that said plan, don't worry. I mean, there are times when you won't be able to control everything, but sometimes if you give kids a couple of things they can do, even if they're really simple things, if they have a tiny little plan or something that gives them a little bit of power back, even in really uncertain times, it can go a long way. Um, So I I do encourage you to talk to him about it. You may you may be able to actually make him feel a lot better. Okay. Kim, yeah, any that, final that sounds really good. Oops, sorry. Kim, any final thoughts <laughs> for our mom in Saskatchewan? Uh, just that, you know, um, 
we always like to say, be prepared to be surprised and, and be comfortable with that because, you know, it, what, what your child has to say might end up being something completely unexpected or, you know, sometimes kids with these kinds of, you know, real, real big thoughts and worries, um, such as your example, they, they've grown in their child's head to be something like unfounded because it's just, you know, they've been thinking about, thinking about, thinking about it and the way kids sometimes try to understand the world is not like linear and not always based in real information. And then so suddenly you're, you're faced with, Oh my gosh, my, my child actually believes this could happen when it's something like completely unfounded. So um, be Mm. prepared to be surprised and be okay with that. Get curious. Okay. Mom, thanks for calling in and we wish you the best of luck with that. Okay. Thank you. You bet. On that note, we're going to uh, call it a program. Deb Hagler, thanks so much for your wisdom. Kim Hopkins-Betts, thanks so much for your wisdom. We hope this has been helpful to those of you who've been listening. And um, be safe and wear your masks. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much, Ross. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.